progressive and conservative. But it's why, uh, so again on the left, it's why socialism and communism often turn into worshiping a person. To idols, uh, we were staying at a beautiful Airbnb, um, and uh, they had multiple altars throughout the yard and around the pool, and they would change them out. They had like candy bars and uh, small coins they would put in, and, and I remember asking the guy, "Hey, wh- hey, why do you guys do this? Why do you change the sacrifices?" And he said, "To make sure we are blessed, to make sure the gods don't get angry with us, to make sure we are healthy and have enough money." And then it occurred to me, right, initially I could feel, feel sorry for this guy. Man, he's walking around with this. But then I thought, oh, man, I do this. I, look to, I, I, I give myself to something or someone that I think is going to provide what I think I need other than God. I've lived for the approval and admiration of others. I've lived for comfort. I've tried to control my reality not by offering candy bars to statues, but by trying to manipulate others to get what I want. This is a human thing. We try to make our reality um, a specific way through sacrifice. And so idolatry in the Old Testament and in certain parts of the world today can be literal physical idols, but the Bible also makes it clear that idolatry can be something that is in your heart. And it's not just the Bible that understands this. Uh, David Foster Wallace, he was an atheist intellectual, an author and professor. Um, He said this about worship at a commencement speech given in 2005, shortly before his death. Uh, There's some bits and pieces of that speech. Firmly committed atheist. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you will worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are there, you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, when even Botox won't get the job done, right, you will die a million different deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will always feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, David Foster Wallace, whether he realized it or not, sees vividly what Scripture clearly teaches over and over. We all worship God, and we, sorry, we all worship. And we we either worship the true God, or we substitute something and make it a God in our hearts and our lives functionally. And by the way, that, that what we worship shapes the quality of our life. You cannot worship at the altar of politics and not have your character formed for better or for worse. You cannot worship at the altar of sex or beauty and not have your character formed. You cannot worship at the altar of money and not have your character formed. So we make this this great exchange. Every human being worships, whether they admit it to you or not. We all worship something. Um, In John Tyson's phenomenal book, uh, The Burden is Light, 
He writes about how, how normal worship can seem when it isn't the worship of Jesus. He puts this, binge-watching entire seasons of TV shows on Netflix, normal. Spending $4,000 on a trip to Europe, normal. Training for hours a week at the gym to maintain our looks, normal. Joining a fantasy sports league and tracking it like a Wall, start tra a Wall Street trader, normal. Working 70 hours a week to the neglect of your family, right, normal. Devoting your life to serving Jesus giving sacrificial amounts of time, money, attention, and emotion to Jesus and his purposes, extreme, probably unhealthy. <laughs> Tyson adds this, the mere presence of passion for Jesus is a critical appraisal of the world's disordered loves. It also provides a biblical reorientation of our affections so the world can see what true, true beauty is, what, what is truly worthy of worship. And so here's why it's important to understand that idolatry is at the root of all our sin, as Paul is claiming here. Because we're going to look at an exhaustive, and it's going to be exhausting to read, an exhaustive list of sins in a moment. And it can be very tempting for you to pick out the ones that you struggle with and try to make them better or worse than the others. And what Paul's going to say is it doesn't matter. They're all terminal illnesses. They're all rooted um, in the same thing, a rejection of God and his way, saying, I know better than you do. I know what's better for my life than you do. I'll do things my way. And Paul's argument here in Romans 1 is that we are all worthy of condemnation, of judgment, of wrath. That we have all rejected God and have created a version of our own God. So if you're walking out of here looking down on anyone, if you walk out of here looking down on anyone, you miss the point of the sermon you definitely miss the point of the text and ultimately the point of the gospel itself. To create humility and graciousness and love, especially as we talk about the things we're about to talk about. All right, so Romans chapter 1, verse 26. Um, in light of this idolatry, it says, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Um, this is the first wave of God's judgment. God just gave us what we asked for. We said, we think the good life is this, so we're going to go do it. And God said, fine, go for it. We think um, the good life is having us at the center of the universe instead of you, God. And that has uh, huge implications. Uh, one author described the reality this way. I thought this was so helpful. It's as if the earth said to the sun, I want to be the center of the solar system. And the sun granted that request. If that were to happen, the solar system would come unraveled just because the sun gave the earth what it asked for. This is a picture of us as humanity. And so when God granted our wish to be at the center of our universe, our lives began to unravel. Our relational world, our emotional world, our physical world, our financial world becomes not what it's supposed to be. And so Paul's now going to describe what that unraveling process looked like. And boys are going to get awkward up in here, okay, as he does. This text is pretty jarring. Uh, uh, me... Uh, Brad Sarian at Verstory LA, we're working on the series together. We were on a text thread with Grant Clark uh, in Durban. And um, we we're talking, we said, man, dude, Romans 1 just feels so jarring when you just read it quickly. And uh, Grant said, yeah, Romans 1's a real jar fest. <laughs> so it is, it is uh, jarring, but we're going to get into it. Um, and, and I want to ask all of us to humbly ask ourselves, do we have an open mind to what God um, has to say? All right. So Romans chapter 1, verse 26, it says, for this reason... God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. 
The women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lusts for one another. Men committed shameful acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Okay? Now, this is the longest passage we have in the New Testament on homosexuality. Uh, it's probably uh, very hard for us to hear. A little awkward to read. And I think it's hard to hear for a couple of reasons. I have 10 of them, and they're my outline, okay? So it's going to be fun. Uh, we've, I've got 10 reasons why I think this is hard. Uh, some of them have to do with our personal experiences. Some of them have to do with our bad theology. Some of them have to do with abuses in the church. Some of them have to do with our culture at the moment. All of them combined to make this almost impossible to talk about, which is why I'm pumped to talk about it today. So, so I'm going to work through these, okay? Why is this so hard for us? Uh, the first one is this. Many in the church have wounded LGBT people with passages like this one used out of context and weaponized. I've sat with many men and women who have grown up hiding because of the way the church treated LGBT people, and they knew that's me. I've met with men who, when their churches found out that they were same-sex attracted, they were blasted for the decision they made to be gay, which, by the way, wasn't a decision they made. And basically, we're told to clean up their orientation or never come back. I've watched churches get incredibly engaged politically talking about gay marriage as if they weren't talking about people. Saying things like, we need to protect our kids from them. Also, speaking of protecting kids or not protecting kids, far too many teenagers end up on the streets or commit suicide because of what's, what's been done to them by conservative religious parents. Um, we've done this before, um, but I'll say it again as a pastor who does represent the church of Jesus in this earth. I am so sorry for the way that the church has treated LGBT people. And if you're here, some of you guys here are um, LGBT people, and I want to say that I am sorry, and, 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 and I want to say that, that that's not how you should have been treated. I also want to say that I am so proud um, of the gay uh, men and women in our church and in our family of churches who continue to follow Jesus, even though the cost of discipleship is clear every single day of their life. Also, I want to say is that if you identify as gay, lesbian, or trans and are not a follower of Jesus, um, we want you to know that you, well, you, we might not agree on everything today. I want to say that we, what we can agree on is that you are welcome here and that we want you here. This is a, a place to ask any question you want. You may end up going, I disagree with this. I don't want anything to do with it. Um, but, but you can ask questions. You can push back. So, so that one reason we struggle with this is, is because of just the way that things like this have been weaponized. Uh, the second reason I think we struggle with this is, is we assume Paul, uh, s some groups of people, um, assume Paul is ignorant to the idea of loving, committed, same-sex relationships. Um, in recent years now, some have tried to say this passage refers only to certain kinds of promiscuous um, um, gay sex. Um, uh, so, for example, uh, pederasty, which is uh, basically an adult and a child, a male adult and a male child being involved in that way, um, um, or uh, temple prostitution or something like that. Um, by the way, you'll find no mainstream scholars who hold this position. Uh, it often is done by amateur theologians on YouTube, YouTube or a podcast. Um, I believe in a misguided but probably good attempt to make LGBT people more feel more comfortable in church and to avoid the world's disdain for the church. 
Uh, you'll also find that folks who adopt this position almost always seem to throw out everything that is controversial today about following Jesus in our culture. It's not just the one thing, it's everything. So there's no judgment, right? There's no wrath, there's no hell. Uh, the exclusivity of Jesus goes out the window. It seems like everything goes out at once. Uh, so I just want to point, point that out, um, that I don't think it's necessarily because it's what the text is teaching. Um, I, and again, I can appreciate the heart desire to be welcoming, but that's not how we interpret scripture. We seek to understand the original meaning and legitimately apply it. One thing I want to say, too, is um, uh, a ton of research has been done on this, and the vast majority of LGBT people who left the church did not leave because of the church's stance morally on, um, on uh, you know, same-sex relations. It was the way they were treated overwhelmingly. It wasn't the theology. Uh, it, it was the way they were treated. So even that, it, it, I think it is misguided to say we have to change our ethics to make people feel welcome. Um, also, exegetically, there's no basis for this position for a couple reasons. Um, it's not likely talking about abuse or pederasty because it says they're doing it to one another. There is a consensual nature uh, in the text. It also describes woman-on-woman um, -woman such, which didn't have a pederastry context in the Roman Empire. Um, also, Plutarch, who wrote in the first century, makes a distinction. Um, man, this, gosh, this is so awkward. Uh, just a distinction between the act and the relationship, uh, a committed relationship. Um, uh, he, he, he viewed the committed relationship to be beautiful, uh, and he, he was a well-known author at the time of Paul. Um, and, and again, don't forget, Paul was a traveled Roman citizen who certainly knew about a lot of things. And so, if you want to, side note, if you want to geek out on the historical context of this passage, as well as the Greek words used, we can't recommend enough Preston Sprinkle's book, A People to Be Loved. A People to Be Loved. Uh, he also just, just wrote a book uh, called Embodied on, uh, on transgender uh, stuff. So, um, but if, you, if you're interested, A People to Be Loved, uh, it does a really good job working thoroughly through the text and also seeking to talk about how to love people. Um, who are wrestling with this stuff. Also, if you just want to grab coffee to talk, I'm down, by the way. I can only get so intense and, you know, specific up here uh, as we are, okay? Uh, so, so, um, so that's important. Uh, the other reason we struggle with this is we confuse uh, sexual orientation with sexual acts. We confuse sexual orientation with, with sexual acts. Um, one thing I want to say is this, this is clearly talking about, um, act this is talking about um, acting out. It's not talking about being attracted to someone of, the same sex. Again, the church has wounded tons of people by blaming them for their orientation because they chose it, what they would say. This text doesn't say anything about who you are sexually attracted to. It is describing who you are sexually involved with. Uh, again, I don't think anyone chooses their orientation, nor does the Bible teach that. Um, there's, an, there's an academic debate over whether um, same-sex attraction is caused by nature or nurture. Um, like most things, it's probably a mixture of both. But that being said, I've never met anyone wrestling with this who chose this orientation, to be really clear. Or who chose uh, being heterosexual, for the record. Like, man, you, you all have that moment when we're four, when we decide, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? I'm going to be this, right? No, you don't. That, that's a made-up thing. Um, so, uh, no... Uh, I've never met anyone wrestling with this who's chosen that. Also, the Bible doesn't teach that you choose your orientation. So that's just not in the scriptures, which is really important if we're, if we're scripture people. Um, it's also super incredibly painful to judge something, judge someone for something for which they have no control over and tell them it's their fault. 
Okay, so to say it's orientation is a, is a, is a big problem, all right? All right, uh, the other reason we, we really struggle with this text is we assume that an orientation, which I was just talking about, which we don't have, we don't, we don't choose, um, we assume that an orientation exempts a responsibility to sanctification. We assume that an orientation that you don't choose exempts a responsibility towards sanctification, you know, which you would choose. Um, again, we are not responsible for our attraction, but we are responsible for our reactions to those attractions. Just because you don't choose your orientation doesn't mean it's good. This is why it doesn't matter if you are born this way for the purposes of deciding if something's okay to engage in morally. Um, ever since the fall, all humans are born with broken parts of who they are. Weaknesses, different proclivities towards different types of sin that are shaped by our specific, our specific broken physiological body, um, our specific, uh, the specific brokenness that we experience in our family of origin, like our attachment to or lack of healthy attachment to parents or caregivers. Some of us were born with a propensity towards selfish ambition. The Bible's message is we all need to be born again. And we have to see this, right? Like possessing a desire innately doesn't make it right. There's a lot of things we want. It doesn't mean that they are good. I know it's hard to talk about this today, but this is, this is still, it, it can't just because I want it, it it's good. Um, an argument for the morality of something being, uh, an argument for the morality of something that essentially goes like this. Um, how could you say something is wrong if someone wants to do it? Um, just doesn't work at, at almost, again, if you apply it to almost any other area of ethics, okay? Um, adultery, if you apply this to adultery. Um, I'm attracted to this person. I didn't choose to be. I want it, so it's morally good. No. Right? I want those shoes. I'm going to steal them. Right? N no. Again, we're not responsible for our temptations or, um, or what we're drawn to, but we are responsible for um, what we do with those things. Again, not talking orientation here, talking um, acting out, uh, being engaged sexually. Um, another really important thing, uh, by the way, is uh, the goal of the gospel, where things have gotten really weird too, is um, the goal is to become like Jesus. Um, it's not to, to change our sexual orientation, okay? Um, really, really, really important. Um, so again, we are not responsible for what we are tempted towards or specifically drawn to. Um, we are responsible for what we do with them. Sam Albury, uh, he's a gay theologian and pastor, um, phenomenal. Um, thinker, uh, and he put this, desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. So we're all impacted by the fall. We all want the wrong thing, and this is one of those sins. Um, another reason we struggle with this text is our culture has told us that if you disagree with someone's decisions or relationships, that you don't love that person. If you disagree with someone's decisions or relationships, that you don't love that person. Functionally, um, this is how we are doing society right now, right? If you disagree with my opinions or my choices, you're a hater, and I need to push you away, or I'm going to leave. We do this with politics. We do this with medical choices. We do this with whether or not your kid gets circumcised. We do this with um, uh, vaccinations. We do this with who you voted for. Um, and now, and then we're doing it with, do you agree with all of my um, choices? But here's the thing. No one agrees with anyone's, uh, no one agrees with all of, of anyone's decisions or relationships all the time, unless it's an extremely unhealthy codependent relationship. You don't have a single person in your life, you're like, I agree with everything they do all the time. That's not true of, you know, my relationship with my closest friends, who I love. 
my wife, who I love, my kids, who I love. Uh, you can ask Clyde. We disagree from time to time uh, about some stuff. I love him deeply. I'm committed to him deeply. Also, we need to acknowledge that as a culture, we moved on from tolerance, okay, um, to forced affirmation. Right? It, 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 it's, it's not that, um, it's not that um, hey, live and let live. That's tolerance. We're good with that, by the way. I'm not trying to make anyone live life that they don't want to live. I'm not trying to force my faith on anyone, okay? But now just to, 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 to say, hey, I, I don't agree with that personally is now saying you hate someone. And it's just not true. It's, it's a logical fallacy. It's super unhelpful. Um, and it just doesn't work, okay? I mean, we, we can't think that way as followers of Jesus. Um, another reason uh, this, this text like this can be hard or ideas like this can be hard is we haven't emphasized uh, we haven't emphasized the cost of discipleship for the whole church regardless of sexual orientation. We often haven't emphasized the cost of discipleship for the whole church regardless of sexual orientation. So when people are called to do hard things here, it doesn't seem fair. Uh, and, th and I think this has more to do with church cultures and theology than it does the topic we're talking about today, but it does impact this conversation significantly. We have made people think that to be a Christian is to just go to church and it doesn't, require you it doesn't require you to actually become like Jesus, to actually be perfected by his love. And so in the last hundred years, we, we've, we have this thing called easy believism, which means if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, now that's true, it's in the Bible, but contextually in the Roman church, to call Jesus Lord when everyone said Caesar was Lord could lead to you being executed. It wasn't like you said, hey, Jesus my Lord and Savior, or whatever, you just walk, you're right, that, that's not it. It's you're my master. You're my, I'm, you're my, uh, I'm following you. My allegiance is to you. I'm inviting persecution as I do this. Discipleship was baked in. It's not praying a prayer one time. Nothing, nowhere in the Bible is like pray a prayer, you'll know you're going to heaven. Now, a prayer could helpfully communicate and help you communicate, you, you know, what you want to be true of your relationship to the person of Jesus. But it, but it doesn't uh, do it all by itself. Again, we've made people think, um, right, if you just you go to church and you're kind of a nice person, uh, but you're never transformed, um, that, you're, that you're a disciple, right? So, so Jesus isn't just a savior. He is that. He forgives us and liberates, liberates us and rescues us. He's a savior. That's good news. But he's also Lord. Uh, he, he's our master. We're learning to trust him. That means obeying him and trusting him that his way is best, even when it is hard. That's not advanced Christianity, by the way. That's normal Christianity, or it should be. I have multiple friends who are gay, celibate Christians. Um, and they would say, hey, it's a lot harder when it seems like other people, there isn't a cost uh, to their sin or to their struggle. And again, we often think it's unfair that, that they would have to give up something uh, so hard to follow Jesus. But again, here's the thing. If you haven't given up anything hard to follow Jesus, whether you are gay or straight, then you aren't following Jesus. There's a cost of discipleship. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, G Jesus writes, Then he said to them all, If anyone, anyone, anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Church, that's for all of us. We're all called to take up a cross daily. We're not handing, we shouldn't be handing a cross to the LGBT community that wants to follow Jesus and going, hey, we're, we're, we're chill. 
Jesus, this teaching Jesus just gave is true not just for my beautiful gay brothers and sisters. It's true for heterosexuals as well. Following Jesus is hard. For example, um, who here has had to forgive someone who really hurt them? Now, keep your hands up if it was fun. Like you actually forgave them. You actually gave up on the right to get revenge or get even. It's, it's painful. Forgiveness is flowery till you're in it. What about? What about staying in a marriage where adultery and abuse have not taken place, but it is not the relationship you want it to be? Our culture says be true to yourself. The scriptures say divorce isn't, isn't an option. Tim Keller said, the, he said a lot of people think that to be single is to be lonely. He said, no, 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 to be married in a bad marriage is lonely. That's the loneliness of, uh, of lonelies. And you don't have that out. Uh, how many of you guys, um, uh, so, uh, so another thing I know is our church has a budget of about $28,000 a month. And we have about 90 members, which means m- many of us as members give significantly of our financial resources every month to make this church happen. How many of you guys love doing that? Like if it were up to you, you'd sign up for it. Right? We got him, right? He's a cheerful giver, right? right? Like naturally we go, hey, it's good. We should be growing like Tabitha said. It's an act of worship. When we see Jesus as worthy of what he is, it, it does make sense. Part of your worship would absolutely be that. You know, um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But it's not something that we'd naturally pick. We, we didn't become Christian so we could tithe. Or give even more than that in the New Covenant, which is fun. That, that, that flowed after, right? But, but again, it's not easy. Tell, tell a secular financial planner you're giving away 5 to 12% of your income a month. We'll lose our minds. But Jesus calls us to it. How many of you guys like doing conflict in a mature, vulnerable way? Where you put yourself out there like Jesus calls you to, right? No, right? So discipleship should be hard for all of us. Now, again, because we're in the West, currently it seems like we're asking people to do something hard. Um, for believers in China, for believers in Indonesia, for believers in Iran, the logic that Jesus, God wouldn't ask us to do a hard thing that's not natural to us wouldn't make sense. Like, that's Christianity. I'm following Jesus. We're sheep among wolves. I just want you to see this. So, so the church in the West is kind of, um, uh, in the words of my daughter Olivia, we've made discipleship easy peasy. You just come to church, maybe give 1%, maybe, maybe don't, don't, you're not a servant. You volunteer once a month, and, um, and you, you, don't, you don't cheat on your wife or your husband, and, and you don't have sex before you're married, and, and, and probably that's good. You don't even have to love Jesus in this equation or become like him. No, friends, that's not what the gospel is. Discipleship is hard. And so I can understand the frustration of this community when the bulk of American Christians, it's kind of like um, American dream with some Jesus sprinkled on top. That's discipleship. No, Jesus, discipleship's radical surrender to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is no small thing. If you've never given up something hard for Jesus, you're probably not following him. If there isn't something you do and you only do it because you follow Jesus, you're probably not following him. 
Also, again, the goal for our discipleship is becoming like Jesus, not becoming straight or heterosexual, whatever. Because people that love and follow Jesus are... are, are, All right. Another reason this text is hard. Um, our our uh, Our secular culture has made an idol out of sex and romance. Our secular culture has made an idol out of sex and romance. We live in a culture in the West that thinks sexual fulfillment is the key to life. Although you find that, that those who have, um, we'll get into this, right? Um, so, so, so real fast, I, this is really helpful too. Forget, um, can a man and a man get married and have a monogamous relationship? You need to know societally right now, even that seems pretty conservative. For life, just one person. For life, monogamous, just one person. Um, any prohibitions on consensual sex are now seen as intolerant or narrow-minded. Um, open marriages are now more common than ever. Uh, Pornography is accepted. Um, waiting until marriage is viewed as archaic, even though studies show if you have sex before you're married, you're significantly more likely to get a divorce. Um, uh, in Australia, they just passed a law um, where um, churches and organizations are not, are, no one can counsel a person to not act out in a consensual sexual way. So, so forget, take the LGBT stuff out of it. Just even like encouraging people not to have premarital sex can now get you fined up to a quarter million dollars and lead to 10 years in prison if someone says they were injured by that counsel. Again, we think, man, it's so important to express yourself sexually. It's, it, we view it like air. Um, right now, uh, there's, there's, uh, there, there's uh, polyamorous relationships that are now fighting for parental rights, marriage rights, um, uh, we can go on and on and on. We've made an idol of romantic love, and we've completely downplayed, by the way, brotherly and sisterly love. Which in a lot of the world, to this day, you're closer to your brother and sister than you do your spouse. I'm not advocating for, for that, but I'm just saying, in the New Testament, there, there's a closeness that can be had between people who are not engaged in that way. There is an intimacy. It might not be a sexual intimacy. There could be a Emotional intimacy, relational intimacy. Um, Amazing people throughout human history have lived without sex and romance. But when it's idolized, it's almost like you're withholding food from people if you say, hey, this isn't for you in this way. This is what what God has, has said. Also, we have to acknowledge that there are plenty of people walking around uptown feeling sexually liberated and are quite anxious, depressed, and angry. It's not healing our souls, the freedom to, to do whatever we want to do in that area of our lives. On the flip side, okay, it's not just the secular culture we live in that made this teaching on gay discipleship seem cruel. It's also the church's culture that's idolized marriage and the nuclear family. Marriage and the nuclear family. So our culture's like, throw off the shackles. No marriage, no nuclear family, you know, do your thing. Over here it's like, do your thing with your wife all the time. Have kids. Right, um, uh, so often I've talked to my, uh, my brothers and sisters who are single and say, in the church at times it can feel like if you're not married, you're a nobody, you're forgotten. If you, uh, I've heard this the other day, I was talking to a gal in church, she said, someone said the other day, you don't understand God's love until you have kids. To which I thought, cool, I guess I'll never understand God's love. Also means Paul didn't understand God's love. <laughs> Again, I, I get what we're trying to say. We're saying, man, I, I, I felt a love for someone who didn't earn it or deserve it. I, I get that when we say things like that, where we are communicating to single people. I'm kind of a second-rate Christian. 
Paul didn't write in Ephesians, I pray they'd know the height and the depth and the width of your love, unless they're single, that they know most of it. It's kind of like life starts when you settle down. Um, again, the scriptures applaud celibacy and singleness. We should too. I was at a church planning event, and I, I, a guy actually said, I was on this panel, a guy said, I wouldn't trust a single guy to be on my church planning team. I said, so Jesus and Paul couldn't make the cut for your team, right? Uh, I saw um, one guy actually wrote an article saying that it's impossible to make marriage and family an idol. He was serious. That kind of shows you. Sam Albury, again, um, gay pastor, um, he said, if marriage displays the shape of the gospel, then singleness displays the sufficiency of the gospel. Kind of that Koi Tenboom idea. When Jesus is all I have, I realize Jesus is all I need. Which leads to my last point. The other reason this is hard for us is we miss the broader point Paul is making in this passage. He didn't go, we need a proof text to talk about why this type of sex is wrong for a disciple of Jesus. He's trying to show, here's how, here's how the entire world, regardless of sexual orientation, has said, my way is better than yours, God. One of those ways is, is I do sex on my terms. But it's, 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 it's in a ton of different spaces, all right? Romans 1, 28 through 32, we'll read the rest of the passage. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. By the way, this is all humanity, all humanity, all humanity. You could change the they to we responsibly uh, as a scholar or a pastor, okay? We are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. We are full of envy, murder. You might be like, I'm not, I'm not into murder. Jesus said if you've, right, you're, you're angry with someone in your heart, you're mad enough to kill someone, you've killed them. Quarrels, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers. Where's the anti-gossip legislation? We gotta start a nonprofit, guys. Right? Get the you know Family Alliance Foundation on the phone. Slanderers, God haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who do practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but even applaud others who practice them. Regardless of where you stand on the first thing we talked about, uh, in terms of if you, if you struggle with that or not, you struggle with 98% of what's in this list. He's coming for you. Disobedient to parents. Good night. Arrogant. If you ever lied, deceitful. Also, heter heterosexual sin is, is sin. It's in here plenty. By the way, all of us are sexually broken. All of us, because we're marred by the fall. All of us. How exactly it expresses itself is different for different people. But none of us, have, our sexuality isn't what it's supposed to be, what it was created to be originally. I have to say, guys, this has been the funnest sermon I've ever preached in my life. Um, I just hope this keeps going, okay? We're almost done. It's important, though. President Sprinkle in his book, A People to Be Loved, again, I think probably the best book on the topic, he says, Romans 1 actually condemns both gay and straight people. 
a point that is sometimes missed when homophobic Christians unsheathe the chapter and wield it against the LGBT community. He condemns everyone. We are, again, we're guilty of all of these things. We have infinitely more in common with each other as fallen humanity, regardless of what sins make you fallen, than you do with Jesus, naturally. If we're honest, like that's where we're at. We all stand guilty before a holy God. We have all rejected God. We have all suppressed the truth. Now, here's the thing. One way people deal with this is they look for someone to judge. That's not just Christians, by the way. That's all people. You want to look for someone who's a little worse than you, you can look down on. Now, you never say that out loud. Very few people say that, but it's clear. Um, And to feel better about our sin, uh, again, I I mentioned this earlier. um, I think the Christian church has done this with the LGBT community. Um, I, um, uh, I've been uh, in a cohort for a while now. I've talked about this before. I'm uh, studying a thing called fa- uh, family systems, Bowen's family systems theory. And it's um, a way of approaching therapy and helping people change and grow. And one of the concepts in, in Bowen's family systems theory, it's something called triangulation or triangling. Um, and, and what it is, 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 is imagine you have two people in a relationship, right? And there's an insecurity about the relationship. There's a problem in the relationship, There's a brokenness in the relationship. There's tension in the relationship. And as a way to deal with the tension, they add a third party or an issue, okay? So so gossip's always triangulation. You're you're insecure in a relationship with someone, so you talk about them behind their back. That's a way to, like, let out some of that um, anxiety. And often we create a problem um, or we, we create a problem that's not really there because we can't deal with what, you know, what's here. So, so, for example, imagine a husband nags his wife saying that she works too much. And, and let's say the issue isn't the amount of work per se. The issue is he feels abandoned, but he can't say that. He can't be that vulnerable, so he just talks about her overworking as if it's in a vacuum, right? Now, again, if, if, her, if her work hours decreased, but he still felt like they weren't connected, you see what I'm saying? It doesn't solve anything. On the flip side, if, if she could have maintained her work schedule, but if she has more time and her free time, to, you know, her rec time, whatever, to, to spend time with the family, he'd probably be okay. So you've added a third component for no reason. Or imagine a woman has a child. Uh, imagine a woman has a child that she's done her best to raise up to follow Jesus. She teaches them the gospel. She isn't a hypocrite. She seeks to live a life of integrity. And when she fails to live up to the character of Christ, she apologizes to her kids and asks for forgiveness. But imagine all that is to no avail in the life of her 15-year-old son. Now imagine, okay, so she's got this anxiety. My kid, right, my kid doesn't want to follow Jesus. That's a hard pill to swallow. And instead of admitting that reality, you know what she does? She starts criticizing the youth pastor. Man, if this youth pastor got it together, my kid would love Jesus. Which isn't true. There's, There's plenty of other kids who are following Jesus, right? But it's much harder to admit that your son doesn't have a hunger for Jesus than it is to criticize the youth pastor for not making good enough meals for her son to eat. That's how triangulation works. So, and again, we see this with the woman at the well, right, in John chapter 4. Jesus is confronting her with her adultery and promiscuity, and she wants to talk about, like, niche theological concepts. She's like, hey, I know uh, my adultery, but, like, seriously, where should we sing on Saturday? That's triangulation. I believe that at a macro level now, now follow me, I believe at a macro level now, there's been a triangle between the evangelical church, God, and the LGBT community. 
And here's what I mean. Even though evangelical means gospel person, literally means gospel person, evangelion, gospel person, person of the gospel, a lot of the evangelical church has actually been quite legalistic or performance-driven over the last 50 years. And so uh, here's what I mean. The church has often had like an authoritative Bible, but they don't have a, a, a hermeneutical key known as the gospel of Jesus. And so they have God's, the commands of Jesus without the cross of Jesus. They have the demands of the Holy Spirit without the, the empowering power of the Holy Spirit. And the result of that is you have a bunch of people who are aware of, what's, of what God's law or God's standard is, but they don't understand God's grace. They've got God's standard without God's grace. They're the kind of people who need the book of Romans, which they had, but they didn't really teach and that makes them very insecure in their relationship with God. If you know, I'm blowing it, I'm not where I need to be, and you don't know about grace, you're insecure in that relationship. That's an unstable relationship, and you're the unstable one. And when we're insecure, we, we, we do some stuff. Richard Lovelace was a seminary professor. About 40 years ago, he described the church's predicament this way. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and of the extent and guilt of their sin that they consciously see little need for justification, although below the surface of their lives they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Many others have a theological commitment to the doctrine of justification, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification, their obedience for their acceptance with God. So again, people who relate to God on the basis of their performance, as Professor Lovelace points out, are radically insecure people who are unsure of God's love. And so that's where this triangle comes in. When one party's insecure in their relationship, they bring someone else in. Again, our natural temptation to deal with that guilt is to compare yourself to other sinners instead of comparing yourself to Jesus, who is holiness and love perfected. And again, I believe that for about 50 years now, many members of the evangelical church have made those who struggle with same-sex attraction the sinner on whom they can look down on. And here's the thing, it's wicked, and it doesn't make us more holy. That's why you hear things making claims like homosexuality is the worst kind of sin. In other words, my sin isn't as bad, right? So they seek to make... They seek to make gay marriage illegal, but they don't seek to make gluttony illegal or divorce illegal or gossip illegal or slander illegal or being an unloving, emotionally abusive husband who's never loved his wife like Christ loved the church illegal. We're not worried about that stuff. We're about this. But that kind of triangling, that kind of maybe God grades on the curve doesn't work according to Paul's logic in Romans 1 because his whole point is that there is no one righteous. It's absurd, logically, this triangle we've made, this judging other sinners. It's, it's like comparing sins is like finding out you, it's like finding out all of us have terminal cancer and we're all at a hospital together and we're all making fun of um, terminal Ebola patients. Like, man, look at that Ebola, a little rarer than cancer. So ridiculous, you're right. You're like, what? We're all terminal, man. Like, like we've got a bigger problem here. This, po- this passage shouldn't cause you to look down on anyone It should cause you to look up to someone, and that someone is Jesus. You should feel insecure in your relationship with God if you've never trusted in the person and work of Jesus to save you. 
if you've worshipped an idol and that idol has made you live a certain way as an enemy of God, you need a righteousness outside of you and Jesus offers it. But here's the thing, Christians should be the most humble people in the world, not the most self-righteous people because the righteousness we have is the gift righteousness of Christ that's been credited to us. That should make us grateful and gracious, not guilty and judgmental. Um, I told some of you guys this story before. Um, when I was in um, when I was in fourth grade, I um, you might not believe this now, but I was a chubby child, uh, and uh, I had asthma, and I was terrible. Uh, I was terrible at anything that required exerting um, a lot of you know lung capacity. All right. Decent basketball shot, but running back and forth, tricky, okay? And, um, and then, uh, I'll never forget one summer, uh, I grew up in Imperial Beach, and we had the Marvista pool, if you guys know where that is. Um, and, and, and I went to the pool back in the day, and all my friends could swim but me. I didn't know how to swim. And I'll never forget, I, I, uh, I decided I was going to sneak into the deep end, okay? Now, um, I had very pale skin. The floor was painted white. I blended in until I started to sunburn. Uh, so I struck while the iron was hot, and I rolled over to the pool, and I, I went to the diving board, Okay? And uh, 12 foot deep, I can't swim. I dive in, and you know everyone's excited. I belly flopped in. Okay, it's very pink at this point. Whatever, neither here nor there. And very quickly, what I realize is I'm drowning. Like I'm drowning. I can't breathe. I'm coughing up water. I can't. I'm just. You just see this pale white basketball going up and down, turning more and more pink, struggling to breathe. And eventually, a guy jumps in. It's the lifeguard and he pulls me out, and he rescues me. He saves me, literally. And uh, it's like, you know, the sandlot, like, uh, you know, da, da. Well, not, uh, not the sandlot, whatever. Um, <laughs> that would have been a real weird plot twist. But he saves me. Now, here's the interesting thing about that story is I've never told that story where I'm the hero, Right? Like I dove into the pool and I was drowning and I couldn't breathe and I got rescued, baby. I'm better than all you guys. You're not out here getting rescued like me. Right? That makes no sense. I was rescued. This is the reality of the Christian's relationship to Jesus. You were rescued. We, none of us can swim. Or maybe, you know, you can swim, you can swim a little bit. None of us can save ourselves. We should be grateful <laughs> to the one who rescued us. Not blasting other people who can't swim as good as us, in our opinion. Because none of us can swim good enough. And so what I want to do right now is uh, I want to um, call Marielle up. We'll, have, we'll do one song in response. I think she's here. There she is. By the way, I'm sorry I went long. I knew it, was, it being delicate, it having a lot going on, we're, we're done. Um, but... Um, I want to take a second. I, I want to um, roll and take. I want to take communion together, and I want to sing a song. But I want you to catch that that none of us deserve His grace. None of us deserve this relationship. Every human being you engage with is made in the image and likeness of God, and has potential to become just like Jesus. And so we don't get to reject anyone or condemn anyone. That doesn't mean you have to agree with everything about them. Doesn't mean you can't. Um, especially if someone is a follower of Jesus, we're called to hold each other accountable. But it does mean we don't get to condemn anyone. The one who gets to do the condemning has provided a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is Jesus. Could you guys have the little communion cup?